You know, whenever I go out for breakfast, it's, it's really awkward. Whenever I look at the breakfast menu, I look for the thing that has the word power next to it. You know, like the power breakfast panini or yogurt with the power probiotics or the, uh, what is it, the, uh, the power core um, protein shake. It never seems to amaze me, but I I always go for those items that have this word power. Whoever has that marketing technique, they've sold it to me. I'm in. And you know, if we look at our world, we find a world that's hungry for power and yet is simultaneously sick of its taste. (laughs) You know, Um, we all know the deep longing for achievement, whether it be in our jobs, whether it be in our neighborhoods, whether it be in school whether it even be in our families, you name it. And yet simultaneously in our culture, in our world, we're very skeptical of anyone who's achieved leadership. In the 19th century, uh, there was one atheistic philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. And he, he did something so helpful, actually. He, he unpacked how the atheistic worldview impacted everyday life. And what he said is, if God doesn't exist... If we're really here by chance and survival of the fittest is the main theme by which we see our lives, then the core of humanity, the core of nature is the will to power. The will to power. He goes on to say that where there is struggle, it is the struggle for power. You know, that's pretty intense. And really that's the backdrop of what we find for so many of us in our culture here in the United States. Think about it. Every time you think about a person in power, what comes to mind? If you, whether you're conservative or whether you're liberal, politicians come with these grandiose problem or grandiose pro, uh, promises, and then at the end of their term, we're always left with this cosmic letdown. Whether you're white collar or blue collar, I'm sure in your memory you can remember some bosses who are demeaning and domineering, such that when we come to the church. It's hard to imagine anything other than manipulation, greed, and laziness. And truth be told, there have been enough stories in the news that seem to confirm our suspicions about the church. And yet we know, as dangerous as power is, we've seen throughout history, and even probably in our own lifetime, how powerful leadership has been a critical tool in ending such atrocities like slavery, ending and stopping genocide, um, giving voice to the voiceless, keeping anarchy at bay. And so we're left asking the question, well, in the church, is there any way that leadership could actually be good for all of us and actually protect those in leadership from being corrupted from power? Well, as all things within Christianity, our answer revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning we'll see that leadership isn't by chance with the end goal of will to power. Instead, because of Jesus, we can come to leadership without this air of skepticism. We can come to leadership not seeing it just as a pragmatic necessity to get things done, but actually we see leadership as a gift. It's a gift. And believe it or not, leaders in the church are purposely given power by God to help us not drift from our faith. And so our call is to not push against church leadership, but to lean into it. Now, if you're new here, and maybe even if you're not, you probably think, oh, this is a really self-serving message, Gabe. What's going on? You know, I get it. I get it, right? 
especially if this is your first time coming to church in a long time, you're, you're probably going, oh, of course. Um, but I, 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 this is critical, not just for this message, but for any message. Whenever you come, whenever someone's talking, this isn't a, a passage that I'm preaching at you. Never. But hopefully, I pray, my heart is in this place, our heart is in this place, that we see that this is God's word for us. And I, too, am under this. And practically, this is true as well. We are one church in multiple locations. I am a campus pastor. I've been given responsibility to shepherd, to lead this congregation, this campus. But I also have leaders over me that are pastors. Um, So I wear both the follower hat and the leader hat. So in a very real way, this text is talking to me. It's talking to all of us. Now, the Bible, if you were to scour the pages on leadership and look throughout the Bible, never will the Bible say that leadership, either in its reception or its execution, is something that's easy. Most of the time when it talks about leadership, it's talking to the leaders and saying, hey, this is how you don't botch up your leadership responsibilities. Don't, don't be idiots, okay? I get that. But today's very different. This is a really rare passage in the whole of the New Testament. Its emphasis isn't as much on how to lead well as it is on how to follow well. And what we'll find this morning is that a new kind of leading requires a new kind of following. A new kind of leading requires a new kind of following. And just to assuage any worries that are out there, there's not some like background conflict that's happening in the church. And I was like, I got to find a passage, you know, uh, to talk to someone. But we've been walking through the book of Hebrews ever since the beginning of the year. And this is the passage we've landed on. It just so happens to land on the same day we do, you know, uh, membership Sunday, right? And that was beautiful. That was God ordained. It's not Gabe planned. Um, But as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, we need to remember that this was originally a sermon. It was written down and and then it went viral to an urban Jewish congregation. And they were exhausted. They're worn out. They're worried about the future and they feel the pull to leave Jesus behind and his church. And so now we come to the close of the book and the author says, he's used this metaphor of a race for life. Over and over he goes, there's one last tool you need to have if you want to finish this race of life well. And what he says is, remember your leaders. Who? Your leaders? Why them? And and why does he wait till the very end of the book to bring up, remember your leaders and go into this whole element here on leadership and, and following leadership? Because first century Christians aren't that different than 21st century Christians. You see, we don't have issues with power and leadership because merely we're modern people. It's because we're broken people, following broken people in a very real way, who are ultimately following the unbroken Jesus Christ. And we'll always struggle with people in power until we see in God's economy a new kind of leading requires a new kind of following. So this morning we'll see God's design for leadership And the local church calls us to be three things, anchored in imitation, not independence, sacrificially reciprocal, not one way, and then thirdly, engaging in constant prayer, not constant criticism. Um, So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Um, If you're newer to the Bible, uh, Hebrews is close to the end, so you can actually start in the back and work your way forward to Hebrews. If you're using one of our community Bibles, You'll find the passage on page 653. 
And before we actually jump in, I'm going to take a second to pray for us. Because there's nothing more awkward than talking about following when you're the leader. <laughs> so ask for the Holy Spirit to do his work um, and guiding us and giving us right hearts, myself included, as we walk through this. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We seek to preach and proclaim what you have said, not what Gabe or anyone else has imagined. And so I pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, your message would ring true. Whatever baggage we have from past experiences of church, I pray, Lord, that you would clear those out of the way that we might be able to truly learn from you for our good and your glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we first hear that God's design for leadership in the local church, it calls us to be anchored in imitation, not independence. Imitation, right? That's a fun word. It reminds me of when I was in high school and I worked at East of Chicago Pizza. We had this nasty imitation meat that we'd stick on the pizzas, right? It always smelled awful, and yet it never aged somehow. And even though you put it in an oven at 450 degrees, it looked exactly the same when it came out as when it went in. Um, And yet, when we think of independence, I mean, there's nothing more American, you know, than independence, right? That's pickup trucks and baseball. And yet Jesus, he does what he does best. He turns it all on its head. I mean, that's so classic Jesus, right? So if you look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, the author of Hebrews writes, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Look at the church leaders of history. Look at the church leaders of today. Do you see something inspiring? Do you see something in their lives that's panning out beautifully and you want to imitate? Then imitate their faith. And yet when we do think this, we do think the cheap imitation meat, right? Because in our culture, we're said, be true to the real you. Follow your heart. And here's the deal. No matter how hard and how much we want to think that we're original, we're always imitating someone. It's either very purposeful or it's just the people who are most proximate to us or the websites we happen to go to most often, you know. The early church fathers, they really got this. Um, And even though it may sound strange to our modern ears, if you look in like the first and second century, these early church fathers, you'll see this pop up over and over again as they're talking to the church. They say, follow me as I follow Christ. Ooh. That sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? Like, come on, buddy, where's your humility? But maybe, just maybe, they understood humanity and Jesus Christ better than we do. Maybe, just maybe, they really got this imitation piece. You know, one recent writer who's captured this well is Austin Kleon. I don't even think, I don't think he's a Christian. I don't know about his religious background. But in his most recent New York Times uh, bestselling book, Steal Like an Artist, 10 things no one told you about being creative. He writes, it's up on the screen. Nobody is born with a style or a voice. We don't come out of the womb knowing who we are. In the beginning, we learn by pretending to be our heroes. We learn by copying. We learn to write by copying down the alphabet. Musicians learn to play by practicing scales. Painters learn to paint by reproducing masterpieces. And then he goes, remember, even the Beatles started as a cover band, which I didn't realize. Paul McCartney has said, I emulated Buddy Holly, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis. We all did. McCartney and his partner, John Lennon, became one of the greatest songwriting teams in history. But as McCartney recalls, they only started writing their own songs as a way to avoid other bands being able to play our set. And as Salvador Dali said, 
Those who do not want to imitate anything produce nothing. So first, you have to figure out who to copy. Second, you have to figure out what to copy. Who to copy is easy. You copy your heroes. Um, What to copy is a little bit trickier. And that's where the author of Hebrews, he meets us. Uh, He wants to help us here. God wants us to really watch and copy those who he's brought into our lives who are already following Jesus well. You see, we aren't told to just follow anyone. So we have to be purposeful here. But we're called to follow a kind of person, a kind of leader, a person of faith in Jesus. But what on earth, right? As we think about criteria, what on earth does a person of faith in Jesus look like? In reality... This is within the context of the whole book of Hebrews. He's given this to us throughout the pages. Chapter 11 is this great hall of faith of those who have followed Christ faithfully. Even before Christ came, there's this language of Moses chose to take on the reproach of Christ rather than remaining in the royal, uh, the royal office there in Egypt. So as we look at our passage, actually this morning, we're given the bare bones criteria for who to copy for who to copy. There are three aspects, okay? So just to help us walk through this. First, copy the faith of leaders who are tethered to the gospel. This is very clear. There there aren't just, these aren't just any leaders, but leaders who have spoke to you the word of God, right? Leaders who have spoke to you the word of God. What's the word of God? That's a pretty bland or generic statement. Not in the book of Hebrews. If you look back to Hebrews chapter one, verse one, The author begins, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The word of God is the living word of God, Jesus Christ. These these leaders, they proclaim the good news of what God has done in Christ as the final word for our lives. And then he says in chapter 13, verse 8 in our passage, Jesus Christ, this word of God is the same yesterday today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the most relevant constant in our lives. He's the most relevant constant in our lives. He'll always be the only reigning king of the universe. There will never be another system or another person who will take his place. He's the source of the faith for the faithful. Now, there are plenty of people in our world that capture our attention, right? They're either gifted with really good communication or phenomenal empathy, when you get around them, you feel warm and fuzzy inside. But if they aren't tethered to the gospel, the author wants us to know you'll find yourself led away by this diverse and strange teachings, this diverse and strange stuff. You have to be aware on who you're emulating and why you're emulating them, why you're copying them. For example, the situation in the book of Hebrews was that there were these false leaders who were trying to pull these new Christians away from the sufficiency of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And they're saying they need to still go and participate in these old Jewish rites of sacrifice. No, you don't understand. Yeah, Jesus is enough, but you've got to still come do these sacrifices. You still need to come to the temple. And the author says, no, stop listening to these voices. Don't copy them. In the old system, the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he would come and he would sacrifice a bull first for his family and for himself, for his sins, and then he would take a goat and sacrifice the goat and sprinkle the blood in the most holy of places in the temple to then atone for the sins of the whole nation of Israel once a year. But they would never eat the bull or the goat. 
they would take these bodies after they'd slaughtered them and burn them outside the camp of Jerusalem, outside the city walls. And I know that sounds strange to our culture, right? Um, I mean, we are barbecue town, but in the first century, it was very different. Um, it wasn't just getting together for a cookout. And it was, it was actually strange that the Christians didn't sacrifice to God. I mean, the cultural milieu at the time was everybody sacrificed. If you had a God, whatever that God was, you sacrificed something to them. You went, brought your goat, your sheep, whatever. But the Christians say, we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to come and bring a goat or a bull. And it was very strange to the culture. But the author says, don't you see? Don't you see? Here in this passage, he begins to unpack. Jesus has done this once and for all. He's gone outside the city gate, the same place where that bull and that goat were burned up. And he was sacrificed on the altar of the cross for us once and for all for the forgiveness of our sins, the final word of God's forgiveness, such that the old system with all of its sacrifices has been fulfilled in Jesus. Anyone who tells you otherwise, don't consider their outcome of life worthy of imitation. In other words, if they aren't following Jesus, then make sure you aren't following them. This is very clear. But not only should the leaders be tethered to the gospel, they should have a vision for the future city. I mean, that God is bringing. In other words, they should be a people who trust God's promises. Look here at, uh, at verse, verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. They have a way of looking at the world and seeing beyond it, quite frankly. They aren't looking for God's um, promised, or they are looking actually for God's promised city to come, which means they aren't surprised by the brokenness that we experience in our city. And simultaneously, when brokenness does come, it doesn't crush them. They're prepared for that because they're looking forward to God's promised city when all wrongs will be right. And part of imitation for us, when it looks, what it really means to copy someone, it's not just to copy their actions, but copying the thinking behind those actions. Copying the thinking behind those actions. Once again, Cleon, which I don't know if I'm saying this, his name right. This is terrible. But Cleon, uh, I keep thinking Klingon for you Star Wars or Star Trek people. Um, Anyway, Cleon also notes this. He says, you don't want to look like your heroes. You want to see like your heroes. The reason to copy your heroes and their style is so that you might somehow get a glimpse into their minds. That's what you really want, to internalize their way of looking at the world. And leaders who have a vision for the future city will have this vibrant hope about them because they don't find their identity in the city that's made with human hands. They're not trying to build their own little kingdoms, but they're looking forward to the great day when God will establish his own forever city in his own forever kingdom. This is a city God will build and establish in his timing. But we can't stop here either. There's one more. Because this doesn't mean that we can just forget about the city we're in. Mystics, oh, they can have grand visions. <laughs> really great because they tether themselves or uh, release themselves from physical reality. Mystics are really great in living in the unseen. <laughs> Atheists are really good at being very physical and practical because all you have is the physical and practical. But a biblical leader, one who's worthy of imitation and copying, is someone who paints the picture more full with the invisible brushstrokes of what is not seen and then the visible brushstrokes of what is seen. It becomes a robust picture of reality that we want to long and see come to fruition. 
Look for and copy leaders whose faith in Jesus also leads them to a faithful life in the city here and now. Look at verse 15 with me. Through him, speaking of Jesus then, let us, all of us, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Leaders that are worthy of our imitation, they don't just point and say, why don't you go do this? I've got this grand vision, you know, of what's going on revealed in God's word. But they're people who are engaged in their city. They're people who are actively pursuing God's realization of his promises here and now, as well as waiting for him to bring the fulfillment completely there and then. While we no longer offer physical sacrifices of bull and goats, the author gives us a great tool here as he begins to reshape how we see our actions in the world. Now as living sacrifices or spiritual sacrifices, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, such that when we respond to God in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and affirming God's faithfulness, this is actually a very pleasing sacrifice to God. When we engage in the generosity of the things that he's given us, this is our spiritual sacrifice in a very physical world. So I want to ask us here this morning, and it's a question we all need to be asking, I need to be asking of myself, who are you copying? Who are you copying? Do they at least meet these three criteria? Are they tethered to the gospel? Do they have a vision for the future city? Are they faithful in the present city. Now, if you're a Christian and your life revolves around independence rather than imitation, you'll probably find that you're not following Jesus at all. And quite frankly, you'll never find yourself because your truest self is only found in the true and better Jesus. We long to find who I really am, and so we go and explore, and we're afraid to imitate or copy with the desire of originality, but we'll never find our original selves by ourselves. It must come in the true and better Jesus. But on the flip side, please don't put your leaders on a pedestal. I'm pleading for this personally. (laughs) You know, God doesn't call perfect leaders. He longs for faithful leaders to be the place of imitation. And this morning, we just announced two more pastors who are going to be joining this crew. And, and now comes the phrase that really sounds awkward, okay? Imitate me, you know? Um, Simon says, not quite, not that direct, okay? But imitate us. It freaks me out to say that because I feel so inadequate as a pastor um, and as a person. But I also want you to know that imitation is invigorating to good leadership, If you want to invigorate your pastor and the leaders in the church, let them know you're watching their lives. (laughs) Let them know that, hey, I'm learning what it means to follow Jesus by watching you. That'll put a kick in your pants, you know, as a leader. I want to live the kind of life that encourages you to follow Jesus as I follow Jesus. Which leads me to my last question. Is your life worth imitating? Parents, with your children... Are you tethered to the gospel? Do you have a vision for the future city that you're painting for your children? Are you faithful in your present city? Community group leaders, husbands, wives, friends, who are you copying? Who are you copying? 
Next, we see that leadership in the local church, it calls us to be sacrificially reciprocal, not one way, okay? Meaning, even though some have been called to be leaders, all of us have responsibility in the church. All of us have responsibility. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What we find here is there is dual responsibility in the church. Both pastoral leaders and church members have a part to play in cooperation to cultivate a church community of gladness rather than groaning. We all have a part to play. First, let's look at pastoral leaders. They've been called by God to keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. What does it mean to keep watch over your souls? Is this like hovering, you know? <laughs> is this legalism? Like, what, what does that mean? And a lot of people interpret it different ways. But I think if we look in the gospel account of Luke, we get a hint here. Because we read a similar phrase of when the shepherds were keeping watch over their sheep. Same sort of language, keeping watch over their sheep at night. When the angels appeared to them and said, the Lord Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, go and see him. So keeping watch if we keep this shepherd metaphor, has the idea of protection, care, awareness of surroundings so that the sheep can make it through the dark night alive, <laughs> guarding them from the wolves, being aware of the surroundings, guiding them to good pastures for grass. And here's the thing, as pastors, as leaders, we're gonna have to give an account and that is a severe weight as a pastor. We don't enter into this calling lightly. It's not something where some do, but Lord willing, if God, if, if we're tethered to the gospel, we have a vision of the future city, and we're seeking to be faithful in the present city, we feel the weight of that reality. I'll give an account for how I've stewarded your lives here this morning. It's not a calling one enters into lightly. And this is why even if you look in James, which happens to be just the next page over, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's weighty. I feel it. But all the members of the church also have a responsibility as well. What does the author of Hebrews say? Let them, your leaders... Do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What is the catalyst of this leader's joy? Right there at the beginning of verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. The pastor's response, my response when I read this, once again, is it adds greater weight because God's calling you to now obey and submit to pastoral leadership. And I'm gonna be held unaccountable as to what that looks like. There's great weight behind these statements. I can't say that enough. And, and, the, and the responsibility from God's word as the congregants is to have a severe trust in God's work in that pastor. A new kind of leading, it requires a new kind of following. Now, to be clear, this text is pushing against two false extremes of following. The first, the author isn't calling the congregation to be gullible people, okay? Gullible people are those who believe everything their leaders say without thinking. And the word obey, this is where it comes, becomes very critical. The word obey means being persuaded to the point of trust. 
That's actually what the word obey here as it's translated means. In order to be persuaded, you have to be thinking through what's being presented. Um, This isn't blind submission. This isn't Jim Jones and Kool-Aid, okay? Um, One example in scripture of how this is done really, really well is when Paul is preaching to a group called the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. It writes, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, this area. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. (laughs) Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. We're not called to be gullible and following pastoral leadership, but to think through being persuaded by the trustworthiness of God's word. Obedience to pastoral leadership engages the mind and finds its source in obedience to God's word. This is critical. It's, it's not mindless marching to the beat of a tyrant. My, my job, in my job description, according to God, is to keep close watch over the flock, over your souls, with the ways of God, not the ways of Gabe. And as soon as I step over that line, I need your help to keep me in check. This is a community role here. But secondly, the author is fighting against this opposite false extreme, and that's becoming cynical. So not being a gullible congregant, but not also being a cynical congregant. Um, Our generation isn't the first generation to be skeptical of authority figures. And cynicism is questioning everything the leader says without thinking. (laughs) So gullible is you believe everything without thinking. Cynicism is you question everything without ever thinking. Instead, what we find here is godly obedience and submission to leadership in the church means being open and trusting to what your leaders have to say from God's word and submitting to their guidance. Those of you who have become members today, those of you who are already members of the church, when you sign that membership covenant, one of the key components is submission to Christ as the head of the church, the Holy Spirit's work in the church, and God's institution of leaders in the church. This is a key component of leadership. Not so we can go on a power trip and control you, but that we might be empowered to help when you can't control yourself. It's not to go on a power trip and control you, but it's to be empowered to help when you can't control yourself. Pastoral leaders are called by God to steward your lives. And you are called by God to steward ours, but in a very different way. Pastoral leaders are called to point you to the joy of Christ, which is why that criteria earlier was so important, being tethered to the gospel, having a vision for the future city and being faithful in the present city, but you're called to cultivate joy through obedience and submission in the church. I am too, in response to Pastor Tom and Pastor Kevin and our elder board. I have a role to play in that as well. And the healthiest of churches, they take both of those roles very, very seriously. Very seriously. And so I want to ask each and every one of, our, one of us this morning, are you doing your part Are you doing your part? We've both been given power in the church. You have quite a bit of power over me, believe it or not. Who's flourishing as the result of the power you've been given? 
Now, I also want to pause and say, I can preach this passage with a smile <laughs> because I think this is one of the most healthiest congregations, and I'm not biased at all. Um, <laughs> it, I, you know, Allie and I, when we were on vacation last year, we were out of town, and so we, we, were, we were at a different church, and we just looked at each other and said, we love our church. You guys love us so well. I'm not preaching this because somebody needs to shape up. I'm preaching this because I just say, keep going. You're doing it. Praise God. And I'm excited for these new guys to experience that same love. I I invite them with joy and say, you're going to get to experience one of the healthiest churches in the world right here. I can't wait for you guys to see this. But I also know that some of us in here this morning, whether it's your first time or you're still getting acquainted with Christ's community, You've had a pretty rotten scenario in a former church. Either it was an angry pastor or an unhealthy congregation or probably both. <laughs> While we aren't the perfect church. By the way, if you ever do find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll probably ruin it. Um, but we, we long to live in God's design here. We really do. And we hope that one day you'll be able to trust God's design for leadership and be able to contribute in cultivating a joyous congregation, one of gladness rather than groaning. And lastly, and this one's the quickest of the three, lastly, God's design for leadership in the local church, it calls us to be engaging in constant prayer, not constant criticism. Look at verses 18 and 19 here of Hebrews 13. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, the first time I read this, I was kind of confused on what was going on. Like, what on earth is the author of Hebrews talking about? I mean, right after he asks for prayer, he feels the need to defend himself. What's going on? Well, this isn't the only time this happens in the New Testament in these various letters. And if anyone who's in leadership in here knows that you invite criticism like crazy. It's just kind of the way things go. Um, And hear me when I say we value constructive criticism. This is a place where we're all learning how to follow Jesus better. We value that. This is a safe place to do that. But I've also encountered, not here, of course, um, some people who all they do is complain. Their life, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about this in uh, one of his books. They've grumbled so much in their life that all they do is end up becoming a grumble. (laughs) Where they're the forever critic everywhere they go. Criticism becomes the key component. At the end of the service, they've got four points on why you should do it better this way. Um, And what the author is trying to teach each of us here, myself included to those who are in leadership over me, and just for our community and for friendships in general, you could go as broad as that, is there are two critical next steps for churches. First, think the best of your leaders. Think the best of your leaders. And then secondly, make the first step praying the best for your leaders. In a world where leadership failure is so public, it's so prevalent in our internet culture, I mean, one click, it's right there on Yahoo or Google or Bing, whatever you use. Um, I know this isn't easy, okay? I know this isn't easy. But just like the author of Hebrews, he, he comes with such an emotional plea. I urge you the more earnestly. You can't get stronger than that, okay? I urge you 
all the more earnestly to do this. Please think the best of your leaders. Please pray for us. For starters, think of those three criteria. Pray that I would understand the gospel with greater depth and that it would saturate my life, my family, this church family and the way we are engaged in church together. Pray that I would consistently have the vision of the future city burned into my eyeballs. Also pray that I would have the courage and the wisdom to be faithful here in downtown Kansas City. All of these would be of advantage to you, the author of Hebrews says. And what's so beautiful about God's word, just as an aside, is that God really does work through prayer. Um, I mean, why does he ask us to even pray if he doesn't think that's the case? He says, do this in order that I can come to you all the sooner. If you don't pray, it won't be sooner, okay? But if you do pray, it will be sooner. And somehow in God's mystery, he works through the prayer of his people. Your prayers matter. And so I want to end with this last question. Are you praying for your pastors and your leaders? Not just me, but now all the pastors of downtown praying for Tom, Pastor Tom and Pastor Kevin, our senior pastors, praying for the elder team. You know, on Sunday mornings, there's this really precious group of people that meet from 9 to 9.30, and they pray for our church, they pray for our neighborhood, our city, our world. And this, this past week, actually, they were coming out from praying on, Saturday, on Sunday morning, and Drucy Peterson came up to me. She's so sweet. She had this very kind smile, and she goes, I want you to know we prayed for you this morning. And that just touched my heart as one of the most loving things you can do for your pastor is to be praying for us. We need it. Oh, man, do we need it. Um, Especially with what God's word has called us to be and to do as leaders in the church. I'm going to be held to a greater account for my role. Sometimes scares me spitless. I rest in God's grace and I rest in the gospel, right? This isn't a legalism either. But God has given great responsibility to his leaders in the church. And he's given great responsibility to the church to then therefore work in cooperation with that. This new kind of leading, it requires a new kind of following that can only be found when Jesus Christ is at the center of his church. It's anchored in imitation, not in independence. It's sacrificially reciprocal, not one way. And it's engaged in constant prayer, not constant criticism. All this is possible because of Jesus. That when we were doing anything but following him, he died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us once and for all for the forgiveness of our sins. He's the true trailblazer. He's, he's the, the example. And all, all the best leaders rest in his forgiveness. Otherwise, we'll constantly try to find our identity in manipulating you for our own power and identity. If we're not resting in the forgiveness of the gospel, then we'll, we'll let you trample all over us rather than having the gospel do what it does and sometimes confronting you in your sin. We'll either be people who are doormats or we'll be tyrants if we don't know how to rest in the gospel and follow his example in servant leadership so that finally I can say, follow me as I follow Christ. And let's follow him together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we come to you. We just, we quote this moment in prayer. As a leader, I desperately 
need the work of your Holy Spirit in my life to refine me, to, to make me holy. Yes, I am already found holy in Christ, but as you continue to work that gospel out in the rest of my life, continue to make me one who can stand before you with joy when it comes time to give an account. I pray for our congregation here. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to cultivate a sense of cooperation and obedience. And we know that means not being gullible or cynical and submissive as you work through your leaders to cultivate a community of gladness rather than groaning. Help us, God, to not enter into a world that is void of you, where it's just this will to power or this struggle to power. But may we rest in the power of the gospel as it transforms our church more and more as a community that reflects you. Help us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.